seats, please. We are in the book of Esther tonight. We're looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Esther petitions the king, is what I've titled the message. And uh, note on the overhead slide here, the theme of the book is God's providential care for his people. And we have worked our way through and are now into chapter 5, but chapters 4 through 7 deal with Esther's courage and Haman's plot backfires. The story of Esther is really a story about God's faithfulness, a story about God's sovereignty, a story about God's providential care for his people, really in spite of themselves. It's got grace written all over it. The context relates to the time after the Babylonian captivity. The Persian king Cyrus made a decree allowing the Jews to return home to their, to their promised land. However, many of them, for whatever reason, didn't want to leave at that point. Maybe they're kind of getting too comfortable in the, in the Gentile surroundings here. For whatever reason, they remained in the land of Persia. And in that context, they were pretty well compromised with the culture around them, as we see in Mordecai and also Esther. Even the fact that she ends up being the, the king's uh, wife was completely contrary to all that the Jews were about as far as inter, intermarriage with Gentiles, uh, let alone a, a totally pagan king like this. So we see them pretty well compromised. But in the sovereignty of God, Esther had become queen, and Mordecai, her cousin, had, be, had come into the, the high position of being in the king's court. So they both uh, had a pretty prominent position. However, they kept it very quiet about them being Jews because they were concerned that perhaps if this got out, it might jeopardize their positions. Well, then a man named Haman, who was of the heritage of the Amalekites, the historic and cursed enemies of the Jews, was made second in command in the kingdom of Persia. And the king gave a command that all should bow before him. Everybody bow before my second in command here, Haman. Well, uh, that did not go well with Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow before him. And he told his fellow servants that the reason was because he was a Jew. Well, that let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. Uh, they went back and told Haman, here's the deal why Mordecai is not bowing before you. He's a Jew. And when word got back to Haman about this, it so enraged him that he plotted not only how he might kill Mordecai, but also how he might kill all the Jews in the whole empire. And so he came up with a plan to do that very thing. Well, Mordecai then appealed to Esther to go in and make special petition to the king on behalf of her people that they might not be eliminated, they might not be all killed. Well, Mordecai strongly exhorted uh, Esther to act and not to remain silent. And we have this key verse here in chapter 4, verse 14. He, he says to her, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Isn't that a great question? Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? This is the key verse in the book. 
It underscores the idea of God's providential working, which is the idea that, that, that God, through normal means versus miraculous means, synchronizes and harmonizes the outworking of things with just the right timing, just the right way, just the right place, the results in a favorable outcome for his people. Now, a miracle is God's intervention in which he suspends and supersedes the, the normal laws of nature in a way that has his signature all over it. That's a miracle. Uh, somebody's raised from the dead. That's a miracle. Uh, that's, that doesn't happen every day, right? I dare say you haven't seen it other than in the morning service once in a while. Uh, you, you don't see those kind of miracles. But providential working is different. In providential workings, God also works supernaturally, but he does it in such a way as to remain anonymous, so to speak. So to speak. Actually, God's providential workings are no less of a wonder than his miraculous workings. Both point to his sovereign control over all things. Uh, One is a little more showy, if you will, sensational in an overt sense. But when you study it, providence is just as awesome. Esther is a book about God's providence. It's about God's perfect timing, his perfect ordering of events and circumstances that results in the preservation of his people. So much so that God's name is not even mentioned one time in the book of Esther. And yet his fingerprints are all over what is happening here. Now, I love that phrase, for such a time as this. You know, there's great application here, because everyone sitting here tonight, uh, you didn't decide uh, when you were going to live, right? You you didn't say, well, I'd like to be the 21st century kind of person here. Uh, you, You didn't decide that. Uh, We don't decide where we are going to be born, what family background we're going to have. We don't choose the country, the context we're going to grow up in. All of these things are just kind of providentially decided for us. And when you really stop and think about it, our lives are largely orchestrated by the providential hand of God. Where you are today in life is largely about providence. Well, we are where we are at this time in history... For such a time as this, I'm absolutely convinced of it. God's got a purpose for you and for me right here for this time. And we are a God-placed people, and yet as Mordecai brought out, within that sphere there is also a human responsibility, which he is pressing upon Esther. If you don't act, then deliverance is going to come for God's people from another place. God's always going to accomplish his objectives, ultimately, for sure. Now, I don't pretend to understand exactly how the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility work, only that I know the Bible teaches both. And at the end of the day, sovereignty does trump everything. You push me into a corner, I'm going to, God is God. He's the Alpha and He is the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And yet, human responsibility cannot be erased from the equation. Esther's response to Mordecai, his admonishing challenge, is a classic. She said in verse 16, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me and eat, uh, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will 
fast likewise. And I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Well, there's resolve. There's commitment. She asks that her people fast for her. And although it is not mentioned, it is assumed by most commentators that the real idea behind this fasting was prayer, as is commonly associated with fasting in the Old Testament. Well, that brings us to chapter 5. And chapters 4 through 7 present the dramatic climax of the book. Here God's people are preserved through an unlikely set of circumstances that only God could providentially bring about. As we step back, we clearly see the sovereign hand of God at work. Well, let's pick it up. Esther chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. While the king sat on his royal throne in his royal house, in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. Now, we saw earlier in chapter 4 that anyone who tried to come into the king's presence uninvited would be killed unless the king held out his golden scepter, signifying grace to proceed. Well, after three days of fasting, Esther was now ready to make her move and seek an audience with the king. It was high drama. Her life was literally on the line. She said that, if I perish, I perish. And to add to the drama, the king had not not asked to see her for 30 days. You know, there might be something wrong, right? Somebody doesn't want to see you for 30 days or they don't ask you. Of course, the king's a busy man. Of course, he's got hundreds of wives. (laughs) He's only got one queen. (laughs) And so it's kind of like, well, sorry, honey, I've been busy for 30 days. I got lots of women in my life. Whatever, whatever's going on there. It's still something that he hadn't asked to see her for 30 days, and so there's that as well. But Esther now set aside her fasting attire, put on her royal robes. She got all dressed up, looking her best for this occasion, I am sure. And this, too, points to human responsibility. I mean, she didn't go in there with her sackcloth and ashes on saying, (laughs) you know, i got some trouble here, Mr. King. Nope, she's dressed up in her royal robes. Uh, She had been fasting. Uh, The essence of that is dependence upon God. But then she also acted. She also acted, doing what she could to get a favorable response from the king. Now, God works, but he also works through human action. It's kind of interesting how that No pun intended, works. The person who says God's going to give me a job but never actively seeks to pursue a job is unbalanced. God generally works through moving objects. We pray and then we act in dependence upon God as he leads. Verse 2. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. He sees her over there and he extends the golden scepter. The king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. So when the king saw her standing in the court, it must have been an intense moment again of high drama. Wondering how the king would respond. Would he indeed extend the golden scepter or not? Would he be favorable or was he in a bad mood? Would he be angry at the presumption that she is trying to intrude into the the royal court here without being invited. Would it, no one quite sure how this is going to go. Well, as we see in the narrative, she found favor in the king's sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter. 
Now, many commentators have seen in this a beautiful illustration of God's grace that is being offered to sinners. And there's a good illustration. That is what is happening in the world today. The door of grace is open, and the invitation is going out. The day of the Lord is judgment's going to fall, and judgment's coming. But right now, the door of grace is open. William MacDonald says, Christ holds out the scepter of grace to any unbeliever who comes to him in repentance and faith. Indeed, that's true. Uh, note just a couple of scriptures here. John six thirty seven. All the all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty. And the one who comes to me, human response, I will by no means cast out. And then in Revelation twenty two seventeen, the Spirit and the Bride say, "Come." Last invitation given in the Bible. Let him who hears say, "Come." The invitation is to come, to respond. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. So the scepter of grace is being held out. But we must touch it. That is appropriated by faith. Grace is offered, but it must be received. Uh, We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, We then as workers together with him also plead with you. So there's a pleading. We're inviting, we're, we're pleading with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You, you need to respond to this grace. It's being offered. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And then again in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. To the unbeliever, uh, the scepter of grace is extended, but just like Esther, they must come. And when they do, grace is there for them. And of course, behind this, we know it's the sovereignty of God that brings a person to that point. Apart from God, no one ever seeks after him, uh, for sure. For believers, the golden scepter of extended grace is always being extended towards us. Uh, we talked about this a little bit uh, Wednesday night. Uh, grace and peace are from God the Father. That's the message to us, constantly uh, the, the scepter of grace, as it were. And uh, Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we have boldness to come, to draw near. Again, in Hebrews 4, 15, 16, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. Where are we coming to? To the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, the scepter of grace is continually being extended towards us as believers. Access is granted, but we must come in that sense in order to find grace to help in time of need. Even though Esther found favor with the king, in reality, what this showed is that Esther had actually found favor with God. God was behind the whole thing. We find in Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it 
wherever he wishes. So again, God's sovereignly controlling what's happening here behind the scenes. Verse 3, and the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? I mean, the only reason you'd be coming and kind of forcing your way into the king's presence in this way would be you want something. I mean, there's something urgent here. There's something that's intense on your heart. And so he, he gets that. He says, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you up to half the kingdom. So it was obvious that Esther wanted something of great importance or she would not have risked her life to come into his presence. And indeed, she did find favor in the king's sight as he asked her what her request was, saying, it will be given you up to half the kingdom. Now, my sense of humor wants to say, well, thank you, Mr. King. That sounds wonderful. Let's call it a deal and draw up the lines after lunch, shall we? Let's get to it. I'll take half the kingdom. That's a good idea, preferably the best half. Anyway, uh, in reality, everybody thinks this was, in effect, an idiom. He wasn't actually offering her half the kingdom. He was expressing his great willingness to grant her request, whatever it was, so long as it was within reason. That's really the spirit of it. Verse 4, so Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Uh, Esther didn't really answer the king at this point. He asked her, what do you want? And she says, she doesn't answer it. She says, "Uh, I'd like you to come to a banquet I've prepared for you. And so she simply invited him and Haman to a banquet with the implied understanding that she would then elaborate on her request at that time. Verse 5, then the king said, bring Haman quickly. Notice that word quickly. Uh, let's, Let's get to it. That he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. The king was all about it. The king had ordered Haman to come quickly so that they might do as Esther had requested to go to the prepared banquet. It was all ready. And so they did. By the way, there's a lot on feasting in the book of Esther. And it's obvious the king loved to eat. I mean, there's banquets all the time. There's eating. There's feasting all the time here. And it seems like the king was into this. He loved to eat. And uh, they say the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? I think Esther is applying a little bit of that, you know, sage wisdom here. Verse 6, at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, again, he's pressing her. What is your petition? It should be granted you. I'm glad to answer it. I'll, I'll be glad to do it. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. Again, he says, up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. So they got to the banquet, and once again, the king is pressing Esther. What is your petition? Telling her once again, it shall be granted up to half the kingdom. The king is really promising to do this. I mean, that's the repeated emphasis here. Whatever she wants, it's hers. Just ask, I'll do it up to half the kingdom. Now, on the surface, if I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, wow, he's really right where I want him to be. He's going to give me whatever I ask. On the surface, it seems like this might be a really good time to bring forth her petition. After all, the king has twice now asked her uh, what her petition is and saying he would grant it even if up to half the kingdom. 
And there's really a double affirmative emphasis here. It shall be granted you, it says in this verse. And again, it shall be done. So it sounds like Esther has him exactly where she wants him to be. However, however, she does something quite interesting here at this point. She delays. Note what she says in verse 7 and 8. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Well, Esther here stalls, saying she'll tell the king her petition at at yet another banquet. She's inviting him to on the next day. She very diplomatically asks the king to come to yet another banquet tomorrow. Now, I know the king likes banquets. That's pretty evident throughout the book. But this is getting to be a little much, is it not? I mean, how many of these banquets are you going to go to? (laughs) Well, how many does he have to attend before he finds out what the queen wants? Well, one more. One more, as we will see. This whole part of the narrative is filled with high drama. It was risky going into the king. It was risky putting off the king and making him wait to even hear her petition. I mean, she's kind of pressing it here just a little bit. Of course, there's banquets at the end of the line, so maybe that'll work, and it does. But the question remains, why did Esther not tell the king at the first banquet? I mean, he seems very compliable and willing to answer her petition. Why did she delay? Well, there have been no end of ideas here, but but nothing is totally definitive, although I like one suggestion more than others, and that's where I'm going to go with you here tonight. But uh, just some ideas. Some think she may have gotten cold feet and really is considering not telling him at all. In the heat of the moment, they say, it seems that she may be wilted and did not have the courage to follow through. That's one idea. Um, Some think that perhaps it was just too abrupt for such a major petition. And she needed some more time to, in effect, uh, butter up the king uh, to, you know, kind of work this a little bit and let it, you know, let it kind of take a little bit before she brings it brings it out. Others think that she may have sensed the timing was not right. For whatever reason, she just didn't think it was, it was, it was, a, this was the right timing. Uh, perhaps she sensed the king's frame of mind was not quite right. I mean, we don't know all these little details. Another suggestion is it wasn't the right place. Perhaps some of the attendants were around and she wanted a, a very private setting, uh, which would be in place the next day, which was not in place right here. All kinds of these ideas. These and many other suggestions are made, but the one that makes the most sense to me is as follows. And again, I'm not dogmatic about this because the text doesn't specifically say, but there is a contextual reason to think this may be the case. We know that Esther and all the Jews in the capital city had been fasting, as the text says. Actually seeking God, I believe, on this matter. It doesn't make any sense that they, as the people of God, were just fasting just to fast. You know, obviously, in fasting for the Jews had a bigger picture of God in the background. 
uh, Moody Bible Commentary summarizes the issue quite well. Her deferment was perhaps, again, note the word perhaps, because she was possibly waiting for a sign of God's involvement. This sign was in the event which took place between the two banquets. That is Mordecai's public elevation over Haman, which will happen between the first banquet and the next banquet on the next day. This is a major part of the story as spelled out in chapter 6 and happened between the first and the second banquet. So very possibly, Esther was waiting on a providential indicator that God was indeed in this. And when Mordecai was promoted overnight, we'll get into chapter 6, suddenly that night the king couldn't sleep. And he asked for the minutes. And he's reading in there about Mordecai and says, man, I should do something for Mordecai for what he's done for me. Next morning he gets up and he promotes Mordecai. Well, very possibly when this happened, it gave her the affirmation that she was looking for and served as a confirmation that she should proceed. Again, I say perhaps. I'm not dogmatic about this, but contextually it makes a lot of sense. John Whitcomb says, Marvelous indeed are God's ways with men, for the intervening events as recorded in chapter 6 provided the necessary demotion of Haman and the corresponding increase of Esther's confidence in God's direction in the course of events for her to accuse Haman openly at the second banquet. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Again, not dogmatic about that, but contextually it would seem to fit. Uh, Do we not do this today, by the way? Uh, We wait on God to providentially open and close doors. Uh, We did that with this very building we are meeting in here tonight. There were many situations uh, where we, we made a move and then we waited to see how God might providentially work. And so... And so we move forward one step at a time, all the time waiting on God, waiting on Him to make the way clear. And our prayer during those days, and I know the body of Christ was praying, we, we know that, and we were praying for clarity. God, make the way clear. Uh, that's a great prayer, by the way. God, providentially make the way clear for us. And looking back, I think we pretty much all agree that God has led us so very clearly to where we are today. And I'll never forget the morning after our all-church meeting, uh, when we saw the funds come in that were sufficient to counter so we could, in fact, buy, uh, we quickly countered bright and early on Monday morning. And uh, I will long remember how the competing realtor came to me and said, quote, I was, I was ready to submit the bid for my agency, and uh, I looked up on the computer screen to see the word pending. <laughs> and he says he was, he was really disappointed because he said, we'd been through this facility many times, and they were now finally ready to, to move on it. And he said to me, you guys must have been praying harder. You know what? I didn't argue with that. We all know it was God's providential working, and even he seemed to acknowledge this in what he was saying. Well, providence is all about God's timing, God's precise ordering of events. And he does do this. He opens and closes doors all the time. 
And I can just see as, as they're fasting, I'm sure they're looking to God for his favor, for his direction, to make the way clear. That would be my guess. And when God works this way, it's, it's a thing of wonder to behold. And we worship for him for how he works in this way, providentially, to bring glory to himself. Well, whether Esther was looking for a sign or not, it's not specifically spelled out. But it is clear that God providentially intervened between the two banquets, between the first one and the second one. Well, as we wrap up here tonight by way of application, you want a picture of providence? I'm going to give you a picture of providence. I don't know if this is a real picture or not. I mean, it's so incredible. It's like this. Maybe this is just somebody put this together. I don't know, but it makes the point. Uh, There's providence. Uh, the people in those cars who narrowly averted disaster with this jet airliner, not to mention the people on the plane, are a good illustration of how God providentially orchestrates the preservation of his people. All the precise details had to align just right. And they do so because of God's working. Is it just all luck that preserves God's people? Well, of course not. Absolutely not. This is his providential working. Psalm 75, 1 says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works. Declare that your name is near. Indeed, we give thanks to God for his wondrous works, proving his providential interaction in the lives of his children. What a wonderful God he is to so graciously intervene providentially, and consistently in our lives. You don't have to think very far to to think how God orchestrated events to to put you in the position where you are today. I mean, it's all over the place. Indeed, his wondrous works show that his name, that's his person, is near. Very near as he works in and through us for his glory. All right, we'll stop there tonight. Pick it up uh, next week at verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. But let's uh, stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close us in prayer this evening.